While the children are exiting, open up your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible with you, there's a pew Bible, you can actually go to page 157 and starts there. I think it's the bottom left corner of that page. I do apologize in advance. I have a cold, and so I might be coughing and hacking, but we're going to get through this, and it's going to be awesome, but I may have to stop and take a drink. All right, I'm going to read for you. If you would, go ahead and read along with me. Again, we're in the book of Colossians, chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may be deluded, I'm sorry, no one may delude you with plausible arguments For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith. We've been looking uh, these past weeks through the first chapter of Colossians, and we we said at the outset that Colossians is a very short book, but it's very rich. And you really could spend, uh, in some places, you know, two or three sermons just on the same verse. There's so much to be said, and Paul has put so much of himself in this short little letter <clears throat> to these people that he's never met. And we talked about how he's, he's very gracious and he's very kind with them. And even though he doesn't know them and he's not met them, he's, he's taken the time to just lavish these kindnesses on him. And then near the end of the first chapter, we've seen that Paul is working up to a very, what we call, um, uh, high Christology. He's, he's going into very rich, rich theology about who Christ is and what he did. And it's all working up to a point. We talked about how the Colossians were facing a certain uh, heresy in their midst, and he's writing largely this book to help them through that, uh, what we would call a polemic. He's, he's, um, he's attacking this, this false idea that has started to, to penetrate into their church. And so he's building up, um, and we see this, we're coming off, you know, just this last week, this, this very high Christological argument that Paul gives. And then he's starting to shift, though. He's hitting his stride, if you can believe it. So, you know, all through chapter 1, he's introducing himself, and he's talking about the ministry and, 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 and the importance of it. And he's basically establishing himself for the Colossians. He's saying, look, you don't know me, we've not met, but here's who I am, and here's why what I'm saying to you is true and trustworthy. So he's building up to this. And what we're seeing, too, is Paul is very convinced that God is the Lord of history, and all of the Old Testament is a witness to Christ. He's building up to this, and that redemptive history is, is leading up to Christ in the New Covenant, and we're seeing him, you know, start to, to narrow the funnel, if you will, right? So he's, he's, he started broad, and he's getting very narrow, and He's showing an organic connection between Old Testament history and eschatological realities, end-time realities of Christ coming. He's, again, he's, he's bringing us to a place, right? <clears throat> he's writing to the Colossians, but when we read this, the Holy Spirit is guiding us as well. And so he's bringing us to a place. And so he's saying that 
that Jesus is not only our past and present treasure, but there's a future state that we're looking forward to as well. We talked about that in Lord's Supper. It's a sign looking forward to something. And he's saying that we have treasures in Christ now, but we're also looking forward to a future state, a future goodness, a richness with him. And we get a taste of the richness of Christ now, and we're given full access to God through Christ, but there's going to be even more that we can look forward to. We will never, ever know Christ. We will never know God fully. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll never know the fullness of God. We will always continue throughout eternity with him to learn the goodness of him. And so these are the, the treasures, the, the richness that we get to mine from him. And I've said Paul begins to shift away from himself in chapter 2, and, and you can really see the first three verses of chapter 2 uh, as kind of the tail end of chapter 1. And, and it's worth noting here, and don't, don't be too concerned, uh, actual chapter and verse are not sacred. <laughs> um, they were added at a later time to help us better read. Uh, as a matter of fact, Greek uh, does not space words or use punctuation. So the words are all run together like this, and then you're reading, you know, when you're trying to translate, it can be very interesting. Um, but we added the chapter and verse and punctuation uh, to make it easier for us to read. So the fact that, you know, the chapter is really technically ending in the first part of chapter two, don't let it bother you. Um, that's just how it was broken up. So he's, he's wrapping up really chapter one, and he's trying to build, and he says, <clears throat> for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And we should understand this, that it's, it's a very pastoral phrase, and it's, it's full of compassion, how great a struggle I have for you. He's trying to put into words to these people he's never met that I love you, and I am concerned for you. You've, you've, you've grown up, and you've established this church, and I want so much to be there with you. It's very pastoral. In his ministry, what he's saying here is not only to people that I have met and only, not only churches I have established, but all believers. And the message to us in this is this church is not just for us in this room. Your love for a believer is not just for those in this room or across the hall or across the road or just people you know. It is for all believers. There is a compassion that should be welling from your heart for all believers. And that comes from Christ. And that's what Paul is expressing here. He's, he's, he's struggling. He's urging. He wants them to know they're not alone. They're not forgotten in their place. It's also a reminder to them that they are not, they're not an island. You're not just a church out there doing your own thing. You are a part of a greater whole. And so in this one little phrase, he gives them something just... Uh, magnificent. Uh, we do know, we said before, that Epaphras, you know, heard the gospel from Paul and went and started this church, and so it's not that he's, you know, he's unaware. He knows of this church. He knows Epaphras, and he trusts him. And just as an aside, really, you know, we, we talk a lot. Um, we went through a, you know, a series on, on elders and deacons and in leadership and church structure, and what scripture is saying here and what Paul is saying here is, you know, the role of elder exists to protect and teach proper doctrine. That's what it does. Yes, we, you know, do the boring things too um, by deciding what color of the carpet it should be and decide, you know, if that's going to cause a fight or not. Um, 
but it also exists to teach proper doctrine so that you, the church, the body, can confidently face persuasive ideologies and false teaching. I mean, Romans 10, 13, how are we to preach the gospel if we're not first taught? We talk a lot about sharing the gospel with your friends, with your neighbors, with, you know, people you happen to encounter. How will you do that if you're not first taught? By all means, take up and read. You could. If, if the only thing you ever did was read scripture, good on you. But again, the role of elder exists is to teach and proclaim the gospel to you. And that's what Paul's expressing here. You know, when you go, when you go out into your life, when you, again, homes, your homes, when you, men, when you're home and, you know, you're sitting down at dinner or if you stagger your dinner like we do at our house <clears throat> or, you know, you're, you're just sitting in, in the car, whatever you're doing, be about the gospel with your family. When you're at work, you don't always have opportunities. Some work environments are not conducive to it. But be about the gospel. Be open and willing and ready. And you learn that here. You, you get filled here and refreshed here. And you learn the proper way to think about Scripture here. But then you take that out. Because this building's empty five days a week. Folks are here on Wednesday and folks are here on Sundays. There's nothing, there's nothing sacred about this building. It's what you do when you leave it that matters. And that's one of the things that Paul is getting at. When we're confronted with Scripture through sound preaching and regular study, we have our sensibilities and our ideologies confronted. We've all lived lives. We've all, you know, <clears throat> uh, developed ways of thinking. And we have our sensibilities confronted by Scripture. Sometimes, sometimes, when our hearts are are open and our minds are a little bit cleared, we change, we adapt. We see that what we're doing is incorrect and we adapt to scripture and sometimes we fight it. It's not what we wanna think. We wanna find something that's easier to understand or better to understand. But we begin to question our biases and we set them aside to follow Christ. Nothing that we think apart from scripture, is sacred. Everything is up for debate. All right. The message that Paul is giving in Colossians is the same message that scripture is giving us today. Often, when you're reading, you think, and we try to emphasize too, we want to emphasize, you know, Paul was saying this, and the Colossians were hearing this, and here's what was going on in the world, and that's all fine, and that's great, and it's important to know. But what you need to ask yourself is, what is scripture teaching me through this? The word is living and breathing and active. So it's not just what Paul said to some people, you know, a thousand, two thousand years ago. Closer to two thousand. Uh, cough medicine. It's not just what Paul was saying to them, but what is scripture saying to you? What do you, what do you see God telling you when you read this? Well, that we unite under Christ in scripture. So to remain steadfast in the work that you're doing today is the same message that the Colossians were getting. Remain steadfast in your faith. It is there. Paul's not talking to a group of unbelievers. Or there were certainly unbelievers in their midst. He's talking to a group of known believers. He's saying, Christian, remain steadfast in the faith that you were taught. And he elaborates on this through the course of the book. But here's what he's saying. You know the truth. Do not deviate from it. It may be simple. You may just be in like the elementary school of faith. 
but do not deviate. He's saying, stay put. Don't look for something greater. You found the greatest. It's interesting that, you know, the church is the body of Christ, and we say that a lot. But do you ever think, like, it's the fellowship of God's own people, and we are the temple of his presence? So if God is, is not just in this building, this, you know, this building, it's a great building, but it's not the presence of God. God's not, you know, he doesn't chill out in the baptism during the week. No, God is in us. We see that in 1 Corinthians. We are the living temples of his presence. Do you not know that your bodies are a temple? So what do we do? We're all sitting here amongst ourselves, well, temples. <laughs> We're all sitting here amongst ourselves the presence of God. It's of extreme importance that Christians learn to live together in love. You talk about a house divided. There's, it's popular now, like if you're, you know, if you're a husband and you like FSU and you're a wife and you like UF and there's like the flags, you know, the house divided and there's license plates and all that. And I always thought how odd that was. It's like, you know, what God puts together, let no man put asunder except for college sports. Um, I'm just odd that way. Like I, sometimes I take things maybe too literal. But there's <clears throat> a point, right, is how can we be together in here, just us in here, just in this room today, how can we be together in here but somehow harbor some kind of ill will or worse, an apathy for our fellow man in here? How can you do that? How is it possible? How is it possible to have the love of God burning in your heart and not care about the person next to you or behind you or in front of you? That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, we are the temple of his, of his presence. We are to be knit together in love. We'll see in a minute. But what is that love that we have and where does it come from? It comes from God. Uh, you know, we have amongst our, our, even ourselves, we have interdenominational conflict, meaning, you know, within, within our, our Southern Baptist Convention, we have, you know, cross-denominational conflict. We say that, you know, this, this denomination, they're crazies, and they say that we're crazies, and then we say that this denomination is crazy, and then one denomination says you all are crazy. And the truth is, yes, actually, some are crazy. Some are not as crazy as others, but guess what? Churches are made up of people, and we're all crazy. It's a fact. You can quote me on that. <laughs> Tony said I'm crazy. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. So <clears throat> here is where I'm getting at, though. It's embarrassing because those denominations, yes, some may be to the far, your left, some may be to the far left on the theological spectrum, and some may be to the far right on the theological spectrum, and some may be in the middle, which I don't think is a safe place to be, but maybe they are, right? I mean, if you're going to be wrong, like, be wrong, right? Um, don't just be like, well, you know, you know, but here's the point. It's embarrassing because we're, we're, we're focusing, we're majoring on the minors. There is so much, and I don't just mean like the little things, that we, that we need to do as, you know, inter, and, you know, whether you have an opinion on whether denominations are a right thing or not, that's another discussion. But the point is, they are Christians. They are believers. And it is embarrassing when there's, there's this spatting and this fighting, and then you're losing the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. And how you believe in the minutia is important. 
But there are so many greater things that you can fellowship over and have those discussions. So what Paul is saying is amongst yourselves and even amongst the broader churches, do you think a church at Laodicea looked anything like the one in Colossae? Might have been similar, but they're different people. It's going to look different. When you go and you see a church in a third world country, it's not going to have drywall. It might not have walls, to be honest with you. You know, or if they are walls, they're going to be, you know, uh, mud brick. And, and the men will stand outside, you know, and the women will sit. I mean, it's going to look different than what we would have. But the point is, they are believers, and we love them. There's an instant connection through the Spirit, as we'll see here in a few minutes. Christians that thrive on conflict and disunity should not, <laughs> actually, they should really check their justification. You know, I, I can't help but think about 1 John. It says, if anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother in whom he can see. How can he love God whom he cannot see? How can we have this strife? It is so easy in our world today. The world is, I think, more than ever full of hate. And if it's not more than ever, it's just more visible. Because of, because of mass visual media, everything just is right in your face all the time, and it's just hate. You've got political hate. You've got scientific hate. You've got young people hating on the old people and the old people hating on the young people. And that's always been around, but it seems to be just growing exponentially. And it's so easy to get caught up in that. And scripture says, no, you cannot hate your brother. Love is what knits us together. You know, I'm reminded of, I'm reminded of the story of the Good Samaritan because, you know, we see in 1 John, it says, how can you love your brother? And then, you know, you say, well, who's my brother? Who's my neighbor, right? And that's the same question that a young lawyer asked Jesus. And he said, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law and how do you read it? So interesting, right? Jesus is, Jesus is saying, how do you read it? I just, I, I, I enjoy that because he's being a teacher. He's being rabbi. He's saying, how are you understanding this? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself. So, so what happened is the man should have just shut up and walked away. But he didn't, right? Because people. So he said, who is my neighbor? Right? Because he's like a child. He's like, well, you didn't say specifically... And so what he's doing is he's, he's trying to justify. He's like, who's my neighbor, right? Because I've got, I've got a neighbor on my left and I've got a neighbor on my right and maybe one in front, and, but those are my neighbors. So Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, which I won't elaborate, but you know the story. Man's on the side of the road. He's hurt. People pass him by. A Good Samaritan is supposed to be his enemy, comes and helps him. And then Jesus says, which of these three, talking about the three that passed him up, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So there's your answer. How can you not love your brother whom you can see? Who's my brother? Who's my neighbor? Yes, everyone. The love of Christ does not stop at these doors. The love of Christ does not stop at the people that you find lovely and lovable and that can love you back. 
We cannot love Christ back enough. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. Can't repay that. Can't, can't pay that one forward. What you have is the love of God in you, which is the gospel. That is your role. That is how you express love. So Paul's saying a lot here without saying a lot. But he, he repeatedly emphasizes the importance of the love across his letters. And he warns against anything that would come and cause strife or division in the church. We see that again in, in, in Romans chapter 14. He's saying that we are to be amongst ourselves and about the business of building each other up. This is the role of the church. The church is not just to come and to sit and to feel happy, but it's to be filled so that you can go out. It's just a very temporary thing when you come. Yes, it's a place of belonging and it's a sense of being, but what he's saying is you should, you should be about the business of the gospel and the gospel is out there. You learn it here and then you go out and you take it out. Paul says something interesting here. He says a word, which is the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And mystery is a very interesting word. In, in our modern language, uh, it, it's something that's you know, it's unclear. It's, it's, you know, it's, we don't understand. It can't be understood. Um, it's, you know, it's unrevealed to us. But in the ancient world, this has actually a little bit of a different usage. Um, it's, it's a divine or a heavenly reality that is revealed by the gods. Now, this isn't the first time that Paul is going to take a Greek concept and spin it so that Gentile hearers can understand. If you remember, the people in Colossae, they're facing a certain heresy, right, which is, we'll name it, it's, it's, a, it's a proto-Gnosticism, a type of, um, Gnosticism is like a secret knowledge, okay? So people are coming saying, you can be saved, but you have to get this secret knowledge first. So what Paul is doing is he's taking language familiar to them, and he's saying, you know, there is a mystery. And you're like, oh, mystery, you know, and people want what's unknown. And say, so what's the mystery? Because their minds are already attuned to this, right? They're already hearing this from people around them. This is the heresy. This is the, the false teaching that's creeping in to them. And so he's using a key word, and it grabs their attention. And he says, there is a mystery. And immediately they're thinking, oh, it's something revealed by the gods. And, but then he takes advantage of this, and he says that the mystery is Christ, and they're like, oh, oh, you know, and so they're starting, the gears are shifting now, right? So they were going in a direction, and Paul, this is why Paul is a great teacher. He has them going in a direction, and then he spins it on them. And it's not a trick. What he's doing is he's, he's if you think of like an engine, he's priming their minds so that when he, when he, gets, to the, when he gets to the meat of it, they're like, oh, it makes sense. It's interesting that there are 27 uses of, uh, he uses the Greek word mysterion, and there's 27 uses of it in the New Testament, and Paul uses it 21 times. So of the 27, Paul uses it 21. And so he makes ready use of this concept, but it's, it's again, in this context, it's referring to a few, it's not, it's not some future hidden event that we can't know about. He's saying, look, there is a mystery, and it is Christ, which you know. There's, there's no more to it. Yes, he will elaborate on, but he's like, there's not some secret thing you need to do. The mystery is Christ. The mystery is Christ. The secret knowledge is Christ. 
This is important for them to hear. Paul does point to the, the work of Christ frequently, and as he should. So when he says the mystery is Christ, it's the death, burial, and resurrection. It's, it's the work that was accomplished, and not just the fact that there was a, a really nice Jewish guy um, that was like a part-time carpenter, you know, part-time blogger, um, you know, traveling and, and, you know, saying good things at a point in history. He's saying, no, 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 no. It's more than that. Yes, Jesus was a carpenter early in his life, and he did travel and preach, and he was a wise teacher. But he was God, and he did those things because he was God. He did those things to fulfill prophecy because he was God on earth. That's the mystery. And he really could have, he, he could have actually stopped right there. I mean, he really could have. But he keeps going because he's Paul. So it's in Christ. So again, he's bringing us to, right? He's funneling. He's bringing us to. So it's in Christ that we learn to understand ourselves, that the church begins to find its identity. And the church's identity is in Christ. It's not in the, the social things that we do. It's not in the things we do in the community. It's not in where we send missionaries. It's not in you know, the demographics of our church. That's not our identity. Those are just things we do. Our identity is in Christ. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is our identity, is what we do reflective of that honor? Is what we do glorifying to Christ? Because that's our identity. The things that we do, yes, are, are important, just as the things we don't do are important. But in what we do and don't do, is it glorifying to Christ? That's the question that Paul is asking. And that's the question that Scripture is asking us today. How are we honoring Christ? Paul links love and sanctification. As we grow closer to, to our Christian brothers and sisters, we certainly grow closer to Christ. It's a, it's a, it's a type of beautiful circle. We grow closer to Christ, we can love our brothers and sisters more. We love our brothers and sisters more, we grow closer to, grow closer to Christ. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. How can you, again, First John, how can you say you love your brother, or how can you say you love Christ and not love your brother? But reverse that. I love Christ and I love my brother. Right? There's, there's some people, frankly, that are just really hard to love. There's no secret there. But you do it anyway. You think, about, you think about a marriage relationship. Sometimes your spouse is really hard to love, but it's never a question of if you're going to do it. You've got to figure out a way to do it. There are times when you, you don't want to get along, right? But you choose to keep loving. You choose to keep pursuing as if it was, you know, the first time you met. You find that freshness, and that's what we do with each other. There, there are some that, you know, you don't got to be best friends, but you've got you to be able to hug your brothers and your sister's neck. And you've got to be willing to cry with them and pray for them and laugh with them. Because that's the love of Christ. That is the joyfulness that we have in him. Christ loves the church like a bride, and we are to love each other emulating that. 
If you don't love your bride that way, then that's a whole separate conversation. But be that example, men. Be that example. Paul talks about, he talks about heart here, and we see it in our day as an emotional element, but really in the ancient context, it was the, the heart was the center of one's personality. And there's a little bit of a remnant of that in our, in our you know, culture. But when he says, when he says heart, he's meaning the deepest part of your being. And so he's saying, you know, when he goes, um, sorry, when we're, you know, when we're knit together in love, when he's, he's not referring to, you know, this, this, you know, I heart thing. Um, he's saying there is a, there is a deepness, our personalities. It's not just an action that we do when we shake hands and we hug and we move on. It's like your personality is affected when you come across your brothers and sisters in Christ. When you're, when you're ministering to them and they're ministering to you, your personality, your, your person changes, not just your heart, not just you have this fluttering, you know, inside and you have this, you know, temporary happy feel-good moment, but you actually, you are changed and you are changing others. Where Paul is getting at here when he's saying that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, that Christ is, he's the source of every conceivable thing, but also of any and all spiritual knowledge worth having. The Colossians are no different than us. We have, we have things constantly vying for our attention. In your life, in your, you wake up in the morning, and I, I'm, I'm willing to wager that most of you have a phone next to your nightstand, and the temptation is to grab that phone and to start looking on it checking my email, checking my social media. Maybe you got your work email on it, right? So, I mean, you're, it, it, the crust isn't even out of your eyes yet, and your mind is already going. Your attention is already being vied for. You, you know, you wake up, you know, you, you know, brush your teeth, you slop something in your hair. I don't have hair, but I, I would if I did. Um... By the way, with the beard, I think I have more hair than Chris now. So I got that going for me. Um, but you, you wake up, and I mean, and as soon as you wake up and you go to your, you know, your daily lives and you get in the car and you probably don't just sit there in silence and traffic. You have the radio on and you've got these crazy morning DJs just jibber-jabbering, you know, and you've got commercials. And then you get to work and you fire up your computer and you've got email and you've got you know, the guy that is always walking around with a donut, like where did he get the donut? But he's always walking around with the donut and he's telling you some story about what he watched on TV last night. And you go throughout your day and these things happen, right? I've, oh man, there's this, new, there's this new widget I saw and Amazon has it and I want it. And so you spend 30 minutes on Amazon because you just went there to check the price of something, but you got, you know, sucked into the wormhole of Amazon. And now, you know, and now you're looking at, you know, sock repair kits and, and you're just, you're, your mind is constantly being pulled one way or the other. But that's just the good stuff. All of a sudden, somebody comes by, and maybe it's at church, or maybe it's one of your buddies, and says, hey, there's this famous blogger guy that is saying he doesn't believe in the Trinity. And you're like, what? That's crazy. And so maybe you start researching it. And all of a sudden, you realize this blogger guy, he's super cool, by the way right? I mean, he's got a blog, and he's got hair. 
um, really good hair. And so he's putting out all this evidence of why he thinks the Trinity is not a good idea. And so you start to get pulled that way. And you're studying it and you're thinking about it and maybe, maybe he's right. I mean, at the end of the day, what does it really matter, right? I mean, because the word Trinity is not even found in Scripture. So what's it really matter? And so you get pulled one way or another. Or there is a, you know, a preacher on TV that you really like. And you've been listening to him for years. And all of a sudden he comes out and he says something that kind of sounds strange, but you like this guy. And you trust him. You've been listening to him for years. You've, you've gone to hear him preach when he's in town, right? So you're being pulled, and you're being moved, and you're being nudged. And don't think that culture is ever going to nudge you towards Christ, ever. It happens all the time. We are constantly distracted by all these different ideologies because it's in our face all the time, all the time. I was, I was running a a race with my brother-in-law. It was an off-road race, and we were out in the middle of, like, nowhere, Bartow. I mean, like, nowhere. I mean, if I'd have died, they might not have found me for, like, a couple weeks. Um, but I remember just being out there in the middle of just nowhere, and I was like, man, there's, like, nothing. Like, and I started to think about if I wanted to live out here, I was like, man, I'll just put a house, like, right there, you know, because it's, like, 30 minutes from, from, like, even nowhere. Like, 30 minutes to nowhere, and then, then you got to go other places. I was like, man, that's not bad. <laughs> you know, and starting to think about what I would actually have to do to build a house there. And I was like, man, it would, it would be a logistical nightmare. Because there's, I mean, you can't even, there's no power, there's no water. I mean, maybe you could get a well, I don't know. But the point is, it is so far away from everything and it was peaceful. Because I just didn't have the chatter and the noise. I mean, even right now, there's something, there's a fan going on over here. It's not ultimately distracting. Not nearly as distracting as Clay's fly story. <laughs> See, what you guys don't know is, like, I spend all morning trying to get my mind right, and he tells that story. Um, but there's, there's noise. There's constant noise. Um, you know, this past week it was cold enough where I, I didn't run my ceiling fan, and I was laying there like, where's the noise? I can't sleep without the noise. And it's weird, right? But we have this constant chitter-chatter in our ears from everywhere, whether it's white noise, whether it's people talking to us, and you're being filled with ideas. Your biases are building up. Your sensibilities are changing. When I was a kid, when I was a kid, there was a Pepsi commercial for the Super Bowl, and it was Cindy Crawford, and she was wearing a pair of shorts and a tank top, and, and you know, as a young boy, you were like, she's a very attractive woman. And I look at that now, and she might as well have been wearing like a parka compared to what commercials are now. Sensibilities have changed, right? We're numb to things and we don't realize it. And so it's easier for things to creep in because we've given up certain things. We've given up stances because it's just easier to. And that's where Paul is, is guiding the Colossians. And that's where scripture is guiding us. It's saying, look, you have the love of each other. You have the mystery, which is Christ. And he'll elaborate on this. But stop being pulled. You don't need to be pulled. Realize you're being pulled. Excuse me. And that's where he wants us to go. We get down into verse 3. In whom all hidden, in whom all, I'm sorry, 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this is a very strange verse, right, to a Western mind. When we're reading this, you know, it's, it's very, this is, a very uh, this is a very ancient way of saying things. And, and let's dive into this. He's saying that Christ is the storehouse of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. And so what does that even mean? Because he already said that the, the, the mystery is Christ, and that is the redeemed church. He's already established this for us. But he's saying the mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church, Ephesians 5. He's already telling us what it is. We know what the mystery is. But wisdom refers to a practical knowledge. And I'm going to give you a definition. If, you're, if you write anything down today, um, this would be a good one to write down. And I know we're like all anti-cross-stitch, you know, in Odessa, but maybe you could cross-stitch this one. The ability to understand reality this is what wisdom is, by the way. Wisdom is the ability to understand reality from God's perspective and to act on that understanding. Let me read that again. Wisdom is the ability to understand reality from God's perspective and to act on that understanding. It's two parts, right? We, we hearken back to Solomon, right? Solomon prayed for wisdom and God gave him wisdom. He was the wisest man in all the earth. But we know through tracking his life that he did not always act on that understanding. So it's one thing to be able to claim the wisdom of God, and it's certainly there for us, but we also need to act on that understanding. And then Paul talks about knowledge, and this is a little more of an intellectual flavor, right? So wisdom, wisdom is a little bit more ethereal. It's, it's practical, but, but knowledge is intellectual. And he, but he connects these two, right? He, Paul connects these two with a single article and that governs them both. So wisdom and knowledge. And so we shouldn't try to separate them either. That's not to say that, you know, if you're, if you're wise that, you know, you're a great mathematician. And it's not to say if you're a great mathematician, you're wise. We, I think we all know people that are like, man, he's smart, but he ain't got no sense. Right? Or, you know, you, all of a sudden you hear, you know, somebody that you think is a little, a little simple, you know, blurt out just this incredibly wise thing. So they go hand in hand, but they, they're not, they don't have to be, you know, all in one. But Paul links them. He says, the riches in Christ of wisdom and knowledge are together. So think about it as two sides of the same coin. Um, Paul is labeling them as treasure, and he's hearkening back to an Old Testament uh, wisdom tradition, whereas this type of thing is a treasure to be sought after. Wisdom and knowledge are, are gifts and good things. And you go after them like treasure. And that's what Paul wants us to see in Scripture. Is that the knowledge and the wisdom found in Christ are like a good thing to be desired. That you would go seeking after it, right? Treasure, treasure is like almost always hidden. Right? And in Florida, we have kind of this pirate culture thing going on. So it's like X marks the spot and treasure maps. You know, when you want to, you know, kind of have that adventure. But what Paul is saying is, go seek after it. If you think, you know, that there is a mystery, and I'm telling you the mystery is in Christ, and that the treasure is hidden in Christ, go seek it. Go find it. But you find it in him, not in other things. You don't go around your knee to get to your elbow, is what he's saying. He's saying you have a direct path to Christ and use it. It's interesting, too, that uh, Paul only uses the word treasure. It's, it's actually thesaurus. 
Um, sounds like thesaurus. Uh, he only uses it one other time, but we really need to take care of the, of the idea that he's giving it this emphasis. He wants us to go seek after this treasure. There's practical knowledge that comes from Scripture. And, and I know, and I'm, 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 I'm amongst you if this is you. Um, you know, I, I sometimes think, all right, I've got, I've got more bills than I've got month, and, or, you know, I've got this situation, and how is Scripture going to help me with that? Scripture's not going to tell me how to fix, you know, a burst pipe in my wall. No, it won't. It won't tell you how to do that. But it will teach you how to have patience and accept the fact that there is joy in everything. Is there joy in being up to your knees and, and you know, muck? No, not necessarily. But you're doing it for Christ, right? There's just a thing you do that's not your identity. Your, your identity is not your debts, although they certainly play in. And your identity is not the, you know, the bad things that constantly happen to you or the relationships that go sideways or the people that, you know, betray you. That's not who you are. And Christ is saying, look, those things are hard. And he's saying, we'll get through them together. I will walk you through that. But take joy in it. There is treasure in me. If you're looking for wisdom, if you're looking for knowledge, if you're looking for joy, it is in me. We have secure access to that treasure. This brings us up to verse 4. Paul takes a very striking turn here. Really, as I said, you can consider the verse, that verse 3, up to verse 3, is really kind of the end of chapter 1. And he's starting to take this turn now, and he's setting the table, and he's actually going to start addressing some of these issues with these false teachings that are creeping in. Now, look, we'll never know what the actual heresy was, what is called the Colossian heresy, and it doesn't matter. I'm actually glad that it's not here because we would want to focus on that and we would want to puff up our chest and say, we're not proto-Gnosticists. Gnosticisms, you know, and, you know, and we, can, we can go and say, we don't believe in this and here's why. Now, we know just, again, on the periphery, this is very likely what it was. But it doesn't matter. It's unimportant. What Scripture wants us to know is that we need to be on our guard when these things do creep in. Be on your guard. We like to run around and say, you know, we shouldn't judge others. Yeah, absolutely. If someone comes in and says something to you that doesn't jive with Scripture, yes. And you take them to Scripture. And you talk about that. And you teach. There is a right and a wrong. There is truth and there is false teaching. And you can stand firm in that. You can stand firm in Scripture. So again, it's not important what the heresy was. What's important is that it was creeping into these believers' lives. Paul acknowledges them as believers. You as believers need to be aware of the things creeping into your life and vying for the attention that is rightfully Christ's. Because it happens. It's going to happen. If it hasn't happened, if you're a new believer, new believer, be on guard. And if you've been around this globe a few times, you know. Be on guard. <clears throat> Crowds like homogeny. Crowds like to all get along. And that's what we're seeing 
you know, when we, when we see these, uh, you know, the gender battles and the culture battles, when we see, you know, whatever the, the great thing to hate this week is, you know, on, on TV and the news and social media, is everybody just wants to feel the same. Everybody wants to feel like they belong. And we've come to the point now in our, our collective global culture where, you know, we'll all do this if you like it or not. Like, we're not, any trying, to, we're not trying to convince anymore. We're just going to, you know, fight you for it. We're going to beat you into submission. But crowds like to feel that. It's, it's what we call like the mob mentality. Everybody wants to feel like they're the same and they get along. And Paul's saying, I see this happening to you, and I know your tendencies. I know most of you came from a pagan background, which just means you were aware of God, but you kind of loosely followed God or other gods or some kind of syncretism. He's saying, I know you came from this. I know where you're from, and I know how easy it is to want to go back. If you're a Christian today, and your parents and your family are not, and when you go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas or you know, a random Sunday dinner, it's so easy for you to want to slide back into that because it makes you feel apart. It makes you feel like you're closer. Maybe you have a soured relationship because you chose Christ over somebody. It is so easy to want to go to that. And Scripture is saying, brother, sister, no. There is more in Christ. There is vast treasure. Work on those relationships. You be about the gospel in the lives of those people, especially if they're your loved ones and family, because you're there all the time. But there is richness in Christ that cannot be found elsewhere. Paul talks about, he talks about <clears throat> plausible arguments, and these are so common. I mean, again, there's, there's all different things that we want to be a part of. You know, there was, a, there was a time when I wanted to be a part of a certain group because in my mind, they were intellectuals, and they truly were. And, you know, they, were, they would sit around and have these great discussions, and I, I just, you know, I, just, I would sit there and just listen, you know, and just learn. And, and every once in a while, I'd say something, you know, I'd ask a question in such a way that it wasn't a question I knew the answer to it. I just wanted them to know that I knew how to ask that question. And, you know, that was actually a, that was okay, <laughs> You know, it's okay to want to be a part of something, but when it's apart from Christ, when you're allowing it to consume your identity apart from Christ is the problem. That's when it becomes a sin issue in your life, and that's going to start to draw you away. You know, we talk about certain, certain drugs. You say such and such is a gateway drug or such and such is a gateway act. That's how sin is. Sin will draw you in. False teaching will draw you in just a little bit. You know, and, and our sensibilities change. And our values and our morals shift just a little bit. And you're there for a while. And then it, it draws you more in. And now you're here and you're further in. You're further down the rabbit hole of this false teaching. And it still kind of seems legit. But your sensibilities have changed. Your biases are building up. So that when you're confronted ultimately with truth, it sounds like hate to you. Don't allow yourself to walk down the rabbit hole. If you fall and trip, that's one thing. If you stumble into false teaching, if you stumble into some kind of hatred, that's one thing. 
But if you willingly go in, it's a whole lot harder to come back out of. Human mind is a crazy thing. Paul says to be on your guard, and he points out to them that this, there, is, there is a perfection to be sought, but it's only in Christ. This is what we call sola Christus. You can look it up. S-O-L-A-C-H-R-I-S-T-U-S. It's one of the five solas. Sola Christus. In Christ alone. Literally, it means like one Christ. Alone. Christ only. And, he, and what scripture is telling us is there are a myriad of things that will vie for your attention, that seem attractive, that <clears throat> will make you even think you're pursuing Christ in a righteous way. But if you took those things away, would Jesus be God? If you took these ideologies and set them aside, would Jesus still be Jesus? It's in Christ alone. There is no greater <clears throat> justification there is no greater goal or treasure that we could seek apart from Christ. This is what Colossians is telling us. Stop seeking after all these other crazy things. It's important for us to know that there, just because there's multiple opinions on something or someone famous or relevant, semi-relevant, new, fresh, hip, cool, believes the same way you want to believe does not make the thing right and does not make them any less of a heretic i hear this all the time well you know so and so you know who you know believes this okay great i mean there are people that believe the earth is flat and i'm not talking about just like lunatics i mean there are actual real people maybe some of you are in here <laughs> that think the earth is flat what was that they really do and there's all kinds of evidence, and, and, and I've spent time on these blogs, help me, um, you know, because I, I, I just couldn't believe, I couldn't believe, but I was like, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. So, but here's the point, right? Earth's not flat, but there are people that really believe it. There are influential people that believe it, <coughs> but it doesn't, make, it doesn't make it right, and it doesn't make them any less you know, and in this case, just super wrong. Just because somebody believes a teaching that you want to believe, you want so much for Scripture to say this. So you go and you find somebody that believes it. It doesn't make it right. Just because there's multiple understandings of something doesn't mean that truth changes Truth is always truth. Truth is like a lighthouse. The waves crash against it and the wind blows, but there it stands. It will always be truth. It will always broadcast. Truth never changes, regardless of your understanding or willingness to believe it. This is the gospel. This is the truth that Paul is guiding the Colossians to and that Colossians is guiding us to today. There is a truth to be found, and it is in Christ. <clears throat> Moving towards closing, I know we're running on time. It's interesting in verse 5, he says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So he's acknowledging to them, Hey, look, I know you're believers, and I've heard 
only good things. I know that you're coming up right in the faith. But he says something interesting. And, and, you know, we say this type of thing all the time. I'm absent in body, but I'm with you in spirit. And this, this word spirit here is the word uh, panuma. It's, it's spirit. Um, and Paul rarely uses it when not referring to the Holy Spirit. Now, the Greek context here doesn't give us any indication that he's actually meaning Holy Spirit here. But again, he rarely uses it outside of that context. And I think what, instead of saying, you know, something like, you know, yeah, I'm not with you in body, but, you know, my thoughts are with you. He's not saying like, you know, sending prayers your way. It, it's, not, it's not trite like that. He's not saying just, I'm thinking about you guys and I pray about you and, and, you know, I'll see you when I see you. It's so much more deeper than that. When we understand, again, this context that Paul is using here is I think he's invoking a clear connection that Christ, Christ binds believers together. And that bond is secured with the Holy Spirit. He's saying, through the Holy Spirit, I am, we are together. I am here in this place, and you are there in that place. But in Christ and in the Spirit, we are together. We are doing the same work, and we are going through the same struggles, and we are worshiping the same Christ. And there is a bond there that he's invoking that shouldn't be missed by us. It's not just us here in this body. I can't say that enough. There's a... There's people in Costa Rica and there's people in Panama that are going to be ministered to by members of our church this week. Most of us in here will probably never, ever meet them. I, I ministered to people in, in a little village in Africa several years ago. I'll never see them again. Uh, unlikely that I'll ever see them again. And if I did, I mean, I don't know that I would recognize them because they'd be grown. But there was a connection that I had with believers there. And because of that love that is bursting in my chest when I choose to not be a jerk, I can, I can then share that love. The Holy Spirit is, you know, we, we share that in Christ, but the Holy Spirit is the helper. So no matter how far physically or far flung, we still have all that sameness together. Our togetherness, and this is, this is, so important. It's administered and facilitated by Christ. He wants believers to be together. Together, there's safety in numbers, too. We talked about very early on how the role of elders is to teach right scripture, is to teach proper theology, and to help you be protected, and to help you learn. But there's also a togetherness that comes. There's a, there's a love and a cherishing just like a family. I've got, I've got two siblings, and they're awesome sometimes, most of the time. Um, they're, they're more awesome than me. But, you know, in my mind, it's like, you know, I've actually thought sometimes, like, no matter what happens, like, that's my family, so I'll take care. You know, I'm the oldest. Like, I will take care. I mean, that's how we should feel about each other. And Paul says, you know, when we're knit together in this love and when we're all worshiping the same God and when Christ is enriching our lives as we walk and we breathe every day, this is what we're expressing to each other and we don't need these outside things. We don't need anything special to make Christ more relevant. We don't need anything special to make our sanctification and our justification seem more real. 
Those things are unnecessary, he says. There's no salvation from due punishment for our wretchedness apart from Christ. That's Acts chapter 4. None. Talking about Jesus. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has come, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there was no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's fine to explore other ideas. I think that there, there are times in our lives when it's appropriate to look at false teaching, if only just to understand better the truthfulness of Scripture. Not always. Not always. Don't, don't run away with that. But it doesn't mean we should be swayed. You should be so grounded in Scripture that your heart is not pulled towards these things. If you have an intellectual curiosity, fine. But your heart is not pulled away from Christ. It is not pulled away from each other in the body. Christ is the only mediator between God and man, and Scripture is the sole means by which we can know God and his redemptive plan for us. Stop, stop relying on how you feel in the moment. It's Scripture. You have to always come back to Scripture. If you find something that you think is really cool and somebody has a new theology, by the way, that all the time, like, I got a new theology. I understand the Old Testament in a way that you've never understood it before. Come to my church. Just turn on a walk away. Just be like, no thanks, bro. <laughs> I'm good. Um, but we can't get by without reading the word. You know, in this country, in this country, there are Bibles to spare. There is no excuse for you not to take up and read. None. Be grounded in Scripture. Be grounded in Scripture. Know your Bible. You don't have to have it memorized, but I, I said this before and I'll say it again. Pastor Chris amazes me with his, with his ability to retain and memorize Scripture. Like, blows my mind. We'll, we'll be sitting there and, and, you know, we'll be articulating these finer theological points and he's throwing scripture at me like this, you know? Um, and it's just amazing. You don't have to be that way, although that's something certainly to attain to. I do. I, like, I want to be that when I grow up. But I mean, for goodness sakes, read the thing. This is God's message to us. This is not just some lofty words that are recorded down by a bunch of old guys that have long since died. This is God's living and active word to you. There is nothing you need to find apart from him. Read the word. Spend time in meditation. This is what Paul wants us to see. He's going to elaborate so much more throughout the book of Colossians, and we're going to get into some very deep and lofty things. But it's important for us to know that we have this natural bent to walk away. Uh, one of my favorite hymns, um, Come Thou Fount, is, you know, one of the lines, and I, I think maybe because I resonate with it so much. It says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Like, yes, right? Prone to wander. I am that sheep that wanders off. And I think that's a lot of us in here. Our hearts are not naturally bent. Our flesh is bent away from Christ. Ground yourself in Scripture and change that bent. Point your heart towards him. Point your mind towards him. The wisdom and the knowledge are deeply there to be mined in him. All right, amen. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for the gift of, of Scripture and what you